Hello, and welcome to the Interrobang podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Theodore. You know what? Shantae, you stay. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for joining me for our very special Pride episode. We have an amazing guest coming up shortly, but first, here's what's making news at Fanshawe this week. Monday marked one year since the fatal attack of the Axel family. Fanshawe remembered the four members of the Muslim family that were killed in the hate-motivated attack with an anti-Islamophobia display in the library learning commons. All flags at Fanshawe's main campus were also flown at half-mast. Throughout the city of London, various events were held in memory of the Afzal family. Interabang reported live from one event where the city unveiled a new community garden in Maple Grove Park in the family's name. You can find more coverage of Monday's events right now on our website. Graduates from 2020 and 2021 will finally get their chance to celebrate today. Although these grads won't be getting the full graduation experience, Fanshawe has planned an afternoon to celebrate the students' accomplishments with friends and family. 2020 graduates will gather on Fanshawe's main campus from 11 to 1, and 2021 grads will gather from 3 to 5. This will be your chance to thank your professors, see your classmates one last time, and celebrate finishing college during a global pandemic. And finally, the London Food Bank is calling on Londoners for help. The annual food drive kicked off on Wednesday at the St. Aidan's Anglican Church. Co-founder of the food bank, Glenn Pearson, says there is an estimated five to seven years of significant challenges ahead as more and more families access the food bank. The food drive will run from now until June 18th, with organizers hoping to meet last year's donations of 75,000 pounds of food. Now, June is a special month here at Fanshawe and around the world as we recognize Pride Month. Here at the college, the Pride flag is flown and people like Joseph Pisano, Fanshawe's Director of Equity, Diversity and Inclusion, are making sure we remember the true purpose of this month, education, action and celebration. With homophobic and transphobic rhetoric seemingly on the rise throughout the United States, Britain and Canada, we here at the Interrobang are committed to telling the stories of all equity-deserving communities and uplifting the voices that need uplifting. And for that, I can think of no one better than today's guest, Joseph Pisano. Fanshawe has definitely acknowledged and celebrated pride in the past, but this is the first year that they've done so with the guidance of someone like yourself who is committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion. So, you know, what's different this year and how have you been able to kind of have discussions with the college about the best and most sincere, I love that word, sincere way of acknowledging this month? Yeah, so see me, I've always had a funny relationship with pride, right? Because it's it's like, I, I, I'm i proud of myself all, <laughs> all year round, or at least I try to be proud of myself all year round. Um, and, but I think that there are some really important conversations around prior and action, because I think that um, it, it's easy to kind of get cynical about pride. And I have been one of those people who gets cynical about pride. Um, but I, I would say, I think what I'm really excited about this 
Pride Month, and I think it's really fitting that it's happening during Pride Month, is that we're getting our equity, diversity, inclusion, and anti-oppression task force up and running. And to me, the best thing we can do to celebrate pride and to celebrate diversity in the queer and trans community is to think about what are the actions we can take to address systemic barriers that everyone from an equity deserving community is facing. So um, it's it's not specifically pride related, but I think it's an amazing fitting thing for pride because that's really where pride came from was thinking about community engaged, equity driven leadership to address barriers from really an intersectional perspective. And we didn't call it intersectionality then, but pride originated from uh, queer and trans people of color. And so I think it's really fitting to come back to that idea of us working together, different communities, different backgrounds, and thinking about the barriers that we all face together. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're addressing the actual roots of, you know, these systemic issues rather than just like slapping a rainbow on something, for example. Yeah, I think it's about going back and going forward, right? Like we can't understand where we're currently sitting without understanding that past and how those barriers compound. And I think there's this idea that, um, you know, we've achieved marriage equality. We achieved marriage equality in 2005 in Canada. It's, it's getting to be kind of a long time now. Um, marriage equality came much later in the U.S. Um, but, but I think there's this idea that once we got to that, well, like, homophobia and transphobia wasn't an issue anymore. And so it's part of overcoming that idea that there's still a lot of barriers for queer and trans folks, particularly queer and trans folks of color and queer and trans folks with particular disabilities. So yeah, it's thinking about where we've come from, but also where we can go and what's that hopeful message for us going forward. Absolutely. I think something that has come to exemplify that really well is the Pride Progress flag, which, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of speaks to all those intersections that you're talking about. Um, You know, and that's something that Fancha has consistently used to recognize Pride Month, but now is also a symbol of inclusivity year round. Um, You know, what does that flag, particularly the Pride Progress flag, mean to you? Yeah, so I, I was actually reading about the original Pride flag because I I I I knew where it kind of originated from, but I wanted to remind myself of that story. Um, and it originated in 1978, so like that's a long time for a flag to exist as a a symbol and to not undergo evolution, right? And so I think it was really fitting that um, that the Progress Pride flag came about in 2018. And I think to me it symbolizes a few things. It reminds us of that intersectional past of pride because I think we've forgotten that pride originated in communities of color and particularly with trans folks. Um, So I think it reminds us of that. But then I also think it shows us that um, pride movements and uh, sexual justice movements have really had a lot of focus on white queer men white queer able-bodied men in particular and so I think it's important for us to um, think about the diversity in the queer and trans community and and recognize that while all of us are facing barriers those barriers are compounded for uh, queer and trans folks of color and all of the statistics tell us that on all of the different barriers that we might face are compounded and exacerbated um, by intersections with racism and xenophobia and ableism etc. Yeah, it is really 
I mean, it, it's powerful to have a symbol that just speaks to all of that. Um, and it, you know, I, it's interesting you talk about the history of the original rainbow flag too, because that was, I did a story uh, last year about uh, the Wizard of Oz and how it became this like queer masterpiece just through all these different connections. And it wasn't confirmed, but it was sort of one of the the mysteries surrounding that movie yeah. that somehow somewhere over the rainbow inspired the pride flag somehow, whether or not that's true or not. It's just, a, it's a fascinating piece of the, of the puzzle there, just about that movie and that flag. Yeah. Yeah. We talk about um, th- these queer icons, right? I think yeah. Judy Garland is definitely one of those queer icons. Yeah. And I think in part because of the, the rainbow symbol. Yeah. I, I, I also really like that mythology of the pride flag being inspired by that. Absolutely. And, you know, um, you've worked in a lot of cities throughout Ontario, a lot of different colleges and universities. Um, I I don't know. I mean, there's been a little bit of a pandemic. So um, I know that you maybe haven't had a chance to experience London as a a queer epicenter. But how do you feel that London stacks up in terms of its its pride festivities, its just general sense of um, community for LGBTQ folks? Yeah, you're right. So this is this is going to be my first summer involved with London Pride. So I'm super excited about that. Um, I think there are some tremendous community organizations in London doing tremendous work around uh, uh, sexual violence, around homophobia, around transphobia, lots of amazing um, community organizations. Um, I I think that London is on a a journey like other cities of of similar sizes have been on a journey. Um, You know, I've heard lots of stories from folks that that resonate with me as stories that I experienced growing up in Waterloo, too, which I think was a similar, uh, it has grown in the last few years, but I think it's, it's, it was a similar size to what London is now. And so experiences of, of hearing, um, anti-gay and anti-trans slurs. I've heard a lot of that. Um, you know, it, it, those kind of side glances from folks if you're holding your partner's hand. And and I think that that persists, um, even though we have made uh, lots of strides forward, that definitely persists. And it, it, it's always a reminder for me when I hear those stories that we've got more work to do. And I think maybe we'll always have more work to do. Maybe that's the beauty of equity <laughs> work is that we'll always have work to do. Um, but, but yeah, it, it's, um, yeah, we've got steps we need to take still. Yeah. You know, uh, we've got an article coming very soon about lavish, which I think right now is the only gay bar in the city. And it, it got me thinking like, that that's part of the story too, right? That there are all these great charities and organizations that are doing lots of great work, but a lack of spaces for LGBT folks to just like be together and and have fun with each other. Um, And I I wonder like as much as Pride Month is about being a good ally, how much of this is just a chance to just celebrate and love who we are? It's so interesting that you say that because I think it's so true that these spaces it's kind of cliche to think about them like the gay bar in town but they are really important sites for activism advocacy i mean that's how stonewall happened um it's funny because i it's also very cliche but i met my husband in kitchener's only gay bar when we were both going to university there and it has now closed right and it's it's the kind of like um it's kind of the story of uh, queer communities and trans communities is that these sites that have been historical locations of 
of pride and excitement and celebration and activism have closed for one reason or another. And um, yeah, I think pride is about reclaiming that, is about um, reclaiming those spaces and saying uh, we, we should be accepted in all spaces, but it's also really important for us to have our own spaces um, because there's there is a culture that is associated with with our communities and we can't let that culture um, die out. I think that's that's really, really important for us to remember that history and to bring it back and and continue to to fight for those spaces. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's it's just about finding that balance, right? Because you mentioned cynicism earlier, and I think for myself and other queer folks that maybe already have a certain level of cynicism or skepticism towards particularly large corporations, um, some of the pinkwashing that we see throughout Pride Month can start to feel maybe a little bit tedious. Um, so can you walk me through maybe in your opinion, what the difference between pinkwashing and genuine allyship looks like? Yeah, so I think, um, I think pinkwashing is part of what we would call performative allyship, right? It, it's similar to uh, in the wake of uh, Black Lives Matter in 2020, when folks would post, you know, the black square on Instagram to uh, to mark the killing of George Floyd. And um, while that is really important to bring awareness, if it's not followed through with action, then it's meaningless. And so to me, I think real allyship is using power and privilege that you do have to address systemic barriers. So I think about um, folks who are in positions of power to hire folks into leadership, right? Hire queer and trans folks into leadership roles. And so, so we can be examples to uh, other queer and trans folks who are, who are hoping to, to climb ladders within institution. Um, I think it's about thinking about uh, housing for uh, queer youth um, and trans youth. Uh, queer and trans youth disproportionately experience homelessness. Um, and it's, you know, a rainbow doesn't do anything if you don't have a roof over your head, right? Um, thinking about hate crimes, thinking about police violence, all of those things disproportionately affect uh, queer and trans folks and particularly and especially queer and trans women of color. And so it, it's all of that. And I think it's also too about challenging debates that are difficult, but that are really essential. Um, I think we, we ha we're having lots of debates right now about uh, disinformation and uh, what we need to quote unquote protect our kids from. And real allyship is diving into those conversations and addressing why those are harmful mythologies and not just falling into this trap of, well, um, we, we live in a world of free speech, right? Free speech has consequences and it particularly has consequences for folks who are being harmed by that speech. So how much of, of that type of thinking goes into what you're doing here at the college to make sure that Fanshawe's allyship is not just performative? So I, I talk about that with folks almost every day that uh, it, it is really important for us to not... Um, talk the talk and not walk the walk, right? Uh, that's the phrase, right? Yeah, you got it. <laughs> so, something like that. Um, so, I mean, I think it's really incumbent upon every leader to think about how they can dismantle 
those systems within their own spheres. And we all have a lens into it. And I know that's a really big answer. Like you should think about addressing systems of oppression in everything you do, but it truly is the only way that we're going to um, achieve change is if that truly feels like a shared accountability for everyone and that we truly take that and use it to, to make decisions, right? It's always centering the experiences of equity deserving folks in, in our decision-making. I will also say that uh, we've, we've kind of talked about rainbow washing and all that kind of stuff. And I totally think that we can't be performative with that stuff. But I also had a really great moment after we raised the, the pride flag earlier this month. Um, I have the, the privilege of my office sits right outside the flag. So I get to look out at them. Um, and I have a little bit of that cynicism too, having been through this uh, these kinds of movements many times. Um, and so I was excited about raising the pride flag, but you do have that piece of cynicism, like we need to take action after. Mm -hmm. But I will tell you that um, I have looked at my window so many times and people have been taking pictures of themselves with the pride flag or just taking pictures of the flag. And I don't know how many of those folks are from queer and trans communities. I imagine a good number of them. Um, but that has been really heartwarming for uh, someone who has a little bit of cynicism about pride because it, to me, it's a reminder that we've got to do the actions. We absolutely fundamentally have to, but it's also really great to see that when folks see themselves represented, that still matters. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that, that, you know, seeing yourself represented, feeling like there are folks who recognize that you belong and that you should feel like you belong, that's really important to you. So that was a little heartwarming uh, thing to get me over my cynicism this month. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. I think that, like you said, that the tiniest bit of representation can mean everything to someone. Um, I have to admit that I have been feeling a little bit dejected lately. Um, and maybe I'm just spending too much time on Twitter. That could be it. Uh, but it, it does feel like sometimes, at least in the, in the social sphere and what you see online, that cons conservative mindsets are getting more and more conservative. And, and I think what kind of set this off for me was just Texas lawmakers tabling this legislation that would ban children from drag shows and just this kind of overall attack on, on trans folks in particular right now, most, most of which is based on, uh, you used that word earlier, disinformation, right? It's, it's all just a bit exhausting, to be honest. And so this is maybe a big question, but how do we combat this? And how do we find the strength to keep progressing even when others are trying to take us backwards? I think that's a really important question. So I've been thinking a lot about this too. And I, I, I do have kind of a fear that the more we talk about um, freedom, the more we are losing that opportunity to find freedom in terms of what it means for folks from underrepresented communities. Because I do think that sometimes when we talk about freedom, we give license to folks to think about um, some of the things that they didn't like courts and uh, legislatures telling them that they had to do. Well, maybe I didn't like marriage equality too much. Maybe I didn't like this movement to accept uh, trans students in classrooms. Maybe I didn't like that very much. Maybe I have freedom to say I didn't like that. I don't want to. I don't want to accept that anymore. Um, we've moved in that direction in that discourse, and now given license to folks to say, you know, I just want to raise my hand and say there was some progress for queer and trans communities that I actually don't really like, and can we revisit that? And so um, I think that 
it is a really important opportunity for cisgender folks and for heterosexual folks to use that power and privilege that we talked about to call those instances out when they happen. Um, it's it's too easy to sit on the sidelines and be comfortable with that and not call it out for what it is. And it, it it's transphobia and it's homophobia and it's clear and direct and there's no question about that. Um, and, you know, it, it's not just in the US. I think maybe that's why we don't talk about it as much that we're like, it's Texas, it's far away. Even if it is Texas and it's far away, we should still be talking about it and we should still be calling it out. But there are many debates happening in uh, local spheres about very similar things, right? We have local debates about books in classrooms that depict uh, same-sex couples or books in classrooms that talk about gender identity. And there are age-appropriate ways of talking about all of these topics, and we should talk about them because the the risk is not just symbolic the risk is that we lose the life of a queer trans youth who doesn't see themselves represented and those are the stakes and i think we don't think about those stakes enough we think of them as academic conversations and uh but we we have and we will continue to lose those lives of queer and trans youth if we don't intervene with our power and privilege to say that these are instances of homophobia and transphobia so Maybe that's a long answer to your question. But, oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah it, you know, it's it's not just a difference of, pain, of opinion anymore, right? Not when people's lives are at risk, like you said. It, it's it's a, it's a bit more than that. Yeah, yeah, and I and I do think too that I have seen. Um, maybe this is anecdotal, but I do feel like I've seen an increase in homophobic and transphobic discourse mm-hmm. um, uh, among folks that I follow on social media from years past, from past lives, high school, you know, things like that. Um, I, I, I felt like that discourse had settled and it does seem like it has had a resurgence. And I don't think that's coincidental. And it's a reminder to us to always be vigilant about um, what uh, what's going on because progress is not static. It's a, it's a back and forth movement that we've always got to keep our eye on. Joseph, I want to finish off with some quick fire questions here. I've got three of them. Uh, we're going to try to uh, open the folks up to some LGBTQ uh, content that maybe they should get into based on your favorites. Uh, so just the first thing that comes to your head, we'll try to blast through these. Okay. Sure. All right. Number one, your favorite LGBT plus television show. I've got to say Heartstopper because I, um, I watched that with my husband the last few weeks and we were just like sitting there bawling and talking about how we didn't have that kind of representation when we were in high school. Aww. So that that's my that's my current favorite. Amazing. And your favorite LGBT plus book. So there's a book called uh, The Front Runner. Um, and it is uh, a, a, a book that is a little dated frankly at this point but it was a book that I think it was the first queer book that I read and I remember ordering it and like hoping that it would come before my parents opened the mail and (laughs) and getting it out of the mailbox and reading it and loving it and like seeing a different relationship that I'd never seen represented in literature so yeah that's my favorite book amazing and lastly your favorite LGBT plus movie of all time and I decided that this doesn't just have to be like movies about queer characters, but also just like 
like we were talking about before, like mo- movies that have become like iconic in the queer community? That's a really good question. Um, I, I actually do, I'm gonna go back to your, your previous example because I think Wizard of Oz has actually become really iconic in the queer community. And I my, my sister is the biggest old movie buff that I have ever met. And so that movie and other Judy Garland movies were always playing in our house. And so um, I, I, I mean, Judy Garland is my icon and she, she's a queer icon in general. Yes. So I, I'm going to say Wizard of Oz, but also any Judy Garland movie because Amazing. we stand Judy Garland. <laughs> oh my gosh, Joseph, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining me. Of course. Thank you so much for having me anytime. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Interrobang podcast. As always, you can catch up with every episode on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and subscribe to our newsletter to keep up with all things Fanshawe. For the Interrobang, I'm Hannah Theodore.